We're going to be in the book of Daniel from here on out. Daniel chapter 1 is where we'll be, so get your Bible out. I'm going to pray for us, and then I will read our passage. Daniel 1, let me pray. Father in heaven, we do, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, and not only is, is it true, but it is yours, and by your design, it is a means of grace for us uh, to pierce us through, not only to teach our minds and our intellects, but to cut straight to our hearts, and that's what we pray for this morning, that as we read uh, and begin to read the story of Daniel, that you would use this story to teach us and to change us, and we ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so Daniel 1. I'm going to go ahead and read it, uh, and it's going to be long, but I think it's important for us to read it together. This is Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. And what we're going to see this morning is this, as a lot of biblical books tend to be, Daniel chapter 1 serves as an introduction for us. It's really going to help shape how we think about the book as a whole. So this is Daniel 1, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both in the royal family and of his nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of wine that he drank, and they were educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or wine that he drank. And therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel and compassion and favor in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were worse conditioned than the youths who are of his own age? So you would endanger my head, the king. Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, tested them for ten days, and at the end of the ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who hate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. 
And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king acquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Last week, uh, Chad opened us up, uh, not actually in the book of Daniel, but in the book of Jeremiah. And together we looked at Jeremiah 29 and, and beginning to think about the Babylonian captivity. And that's going to be our historical setting for the book of Daniel. And Jeremiah is important for us because it gave, gives us a vision of what it means to seek the welfare of the city that we're in, even if we are held captive by it. That's going to be an important theme in the book of Daniel. Uh, there was a tension that we looked at last week, this tension that we find ourselves in now, even in the 21st century as American Christians, a tension between the culture that we live in and Jesus Christ. And this is a tension that is going to be incredibly important as we find ourselves studying the book of Daniel. It's a tension between two worlds, the people of God and the people of Babylon. And this tension is going to mean everything. We're going to see that here, I mean, just in a second in Daniel 1. But we're going to find it time and time again throughout uh, the book of Daniel. In fact, what you're going to see, our beautiful little thing right here, abiding in Christ, living in Babylon. That is the tension that we feel today. That is the tension we feel today as American Christians, and I would argue Christians all over the world. Uh, this tension between two worlds finds its way into different kinds of tensions throughout the book of Daniel. So, for example, uh, there are actually two different genres in the book of Daniel. So a genre, if you think about it this way, if you read the Psalms, that's poetry, right? Uh, if you read one of Paul's letters, that's an epistle. If you read the book of 1 Kings, that's narrative. Uh, last, week, uh, last semester, we studied the book of Revelation. We introduced a new genre to you, uh, the genre of apocalyptic. Right? So if you were with us through Revelation, you heard us teach about what apocalyptic literature is. This uh, imaginative vision. Uh, it's prophecy, but it gives us the imagination to envision something that's difficult for us to comprehend. Namely, in the book of Revelation, the return of Jesus Christ, the end of all things. Daniel is actually two different genres. It is both narrative and it is apocalyptic. That makes Daniel a very difficult book to study. Uh, chapters 1 through 6, so we're starting in chapter 1 today, that's all narrative. Once we get to chapter 7, 7 through 12, it's all going to be apocalyptic. There's going to be a lot that we're going to find that's overlap, uh, congruent with what Daniel sees in his vision and the vision that God gave John on the island of Patmos for the book of Revelation. But not only are there two genres and a tension between those two in the book of Daniel, uh, there are actually two languages written for the book of Daniel. Now, as good English speakers, we're not going to notice this because we have all of this translated for us, uh, and it's nice and neat. But if you were able to read Hebrew, what you would notice is about uh, chapter 2, verse 4, suddenly it changes. And you're no longer reading Hebrew anymore. You're reading Aramaic. And you would think, well, if there's both Hebrew and Aramaic in the book of Daniel, well, well maybe that's the narrative that's Hebrew, and maybe it's the prophecy that's, you know, in the, in the apocalyptic that's Aramaic or vice versa. That's not the case. It totally blends itself. So it makes it even more difficult. So chapter 1, you've got Hebrew. Chapter 2 through 7, you've got Aramaic. And then in chapter 8, again, we're back in Hebrew. Why? Why would there be two languages? 
what we see is actually the book of Daniel embodies the very tension that we're talking about, the tension between the people of God and culture. Aramaic was the official language of the Neo-Babylonian court. It's the language of the Babylonians. And so you have Daniel being written both to Hebrews, right, both to the people of Israel, but there are parts of Daniel that not only could the people of Israel understand, but the Babylonians themselves could understand. So before we even get into the book, what I want you to recognize is the book itself, even its language, how it's written, embodies this tension between being a child of God, being a son of God, and being in the culture that we are in. But lastly, the way that this tension finds its way is culture. And for thousands of years, the people of God have wrestled with their place and culture. We introduced this wrestle, this tension to you last week. And you can think about it a lot of different ways. It's the dichotomy that we are caught between the culture that we live in and the forces and influences the culture has on us, as well as trying to remain faithful as the people of God. And there essentially, historically, have been two ways to think about this. Um, one, there are really two S words that I want to inter- introduce to you this morning. One is the term sectarian. Okay, sectarian. You've heard of a sect? To be sectarian is to say, well, the way that we should, as the people of God, interact with culture is that we should remove ourselves from culture. That everything in our culture is evil and bad, and that the way forward, the only way forward for the people of God is to completely wall ourselves out, right? To remove ourselves, to become a sect. That's what it means to be sectarian. Our culture is hostile, it's dangerous. And so we need to remove ourselves if we are going to flourish as God's people. And this kind of Christianity is marked often by a lot of rules, a lot of legalism, strict boundaries, right? You can probably see this in a lot of legalistic uh, Christian denominations, perhaps. I'm not going to name any. Uh, But you can kind of get the idea of what that would look like. So that's one option, being a sectarian. The other option, quite the opposite, is the term syncretism to be a syncretist, to sync up with the culture. So rather than avoid culture at all costs, syncretists say, let's embrace culture. That if we're going to flourish as God's people, if we're going to even be effective for the kingdom, we need to embrace, we need to accommodate all that the culture is. Right? We need to be relevant. Uh, We need to uh, make sense to the culture around us. And we're not going to do that if we remove ourselves, so we need to embrace it. We need to accommodate culture. Right? So liberal church... Uh, movement ha- is the most recent example we can think of this, right? The 1920s and 30s, and most recently you see this in the emergent church. Uh, the idea that as the people of God, as, as Christians, we are so irrelevant and, and so ineffective when it comes to the gospel that the only way forward is for us to completely embrace culture. All right, so which way is right? Well, in, in good fashion, if you've heard me teach enough, you know that I like to do this. Well, neither way is right. And I would argue, actually, it's not even a hybrid or a combination of the two, not even a middle way between being uh, sectarian and syncretist. That actually, I think what God is calling us to is a third way altogether. Not to remove ourselves from culture, not to accommodate and embrace all that culture is, but actually it's to be faithful. God is not calling us to be sectarian. He's not calling us to be syncretist. He's calling us to be faithful, to be faithful to God 
in a faithless culture. And faithfulness looks completely different. And it's a lot more difficult. And so this morning, I want to look at the idea of faithfulness. Yes, in Daniel 1. But faithfulness really has a theme for the entire book. That Daniel ultimately is about faithfulness. What does it mean to live faithfully in a faithless culture? Daniel found himself in the faithless culture of Babylon. And yet he lived faithfully. And that came with a lot of great difficulty. So three ways I want to look at this this morning, and we'll send you to your tables. The first thing we're going to look at is the faithlessness of Babylon. Okay, so that's number one, the faithlessness of Babylon. I want you to look at verse one. Verse one. Just a little background here. Uh, Verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in his treasury of his God. So the year is 605 B.C., so 605 before Christ is born. And at this time, uh, the uh, kingdom of Israel has been divided into two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Ten tribes to the north. Judah and Benjamin to the south. At this point, this northern kingdom has been decimated by the Assyrians, and Judah is really all that's left. But here they are. They find themselves on, uh, being attacked as well, attacked by the empire of Babylon. And the year is 605, and what we see here is the emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, comes to Jerusalem and totally uh, surrounds it, and lay siege on it. And this is the beginning, the beginning of what we refer to as the Babylonian captivity, okay? Where the people of God are now held captive by the empire of Babylon. Babylon here has captured Judah, but what I want you to notice is not only have they captured Judah, but what does it say at the end of verse 2? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. What are those? Ceremonial vessels for the worship of Yahweh. So not only are the people of God held captive in Babylon, but God himself, right? Their worship. Who God is has been now completely held captive by an evil and faithless culture. An empire that is actually hostile to God himself, we see this again in verse 2. It says, and he brought them to the land of Shinar. Shinar literally means hostile to God. That's what it means. So here is Daniel. Daniel's referring to the Babylonian empire as a land of Shinar. It's a land that is hostile to God. Hostile to the things of God. Hostile to his worship. Hostile to its people. The people are captive Right, the vessels used in the worship of Yahweh have been held captive. Everything about it, hostile to Yahweh. And so the question for us to try to imagine what this must have been like is to try to put ourselves in their place. And the question I want you to wrestle with at your tables this morning is how do we see this reality play out itself today? Because I think most of us today would say, well, we don't necessarily feel like we are um, held captive as Americans, right? 
It's the home of the free, right? Land of, the, of liberty. But what I want you to begin to recognize and wrestle with is though we are not uh, physically held captive uh, by uh, America, our culture, our culture, the culture itself has a way of holding us captive. The culture itself has a way of uh, holding the people of God captive, holding our worship captive, right? That even a place like Dallas, Texas, our city, right, the buckle, not even the buckle, the jewel on the buckle of the Bible Belt, right? That even a city such as ours, a city such as ours can hold us captive as the people of God. What does that look like? What are some ways that Babylon is a lot like Dallas? I want you to wrestle with that. I'm going to give you just an idea. If you've heard me teach or preach before, you might have heard me use this quote. I think it's important enough of a quote, especially as uh, people who live in Dallas, uh, to mention it again. And this is an article in D Magazine. Article in D Magazine. The article was called, Is Dallas the Most Christian City in the Nation? So they're testing that common thought, right? That we are the jewel on the buckle of the Bible belt. And they ask the question, is Dallas the most Christian city in the nation? And it's a long quote, but it's worth listening to, so I'm going to read it to you. Two sides of Dallas. Again, this is D Magazine. There are two sides of Dallas, the spiritual and the worldly, and they are hard to reconcile. The city and suburbs hold about uh, 1,200 churches, roughly two-thirds of which could be classified as staunchly within the most conservative strains of American religion. And you could certainly make a case for Dallas as the most Christian city in the country, the one with the largest and most fervent percentage of active worshipers. And there is no doubt that Christianity of a conservative stripe gives Dallas much of its civic flavor and color, just as New York has its Jewish flavor, New Orleans its Catholic flavor. At the same time, Dallas is a city that worships success especially financial success. And it is a city lurching without grace through a a series of social problems. Its divorce rate is the highest in the country. Child abuse and teenage pregnancy rates are almost as high. You could easily make a case for Dallas as being the most worldly city in America as the most Christian. That's D Magazine. Do you agree with that assessment? When do you think that was written? This is the most fun part. 1985. That was the height. height. It's a lot better now, right? 1985. Yeah, well, I guess we should ask. I mean, has much changed? Has much changed? Right? Has this tension that you notice this writer, who I doubt is a Christian themselves, a D Magazine, maybe, maybe they were, notes this tension, right? This tension between what it means to be godly and what it means to be worldly. And it's a tension that uh, historically, as Christians in the city of Dallas, we haven't really fought very well. That we find ourselves caught between two worlds, trying to pursue God, trying to worship Him in all things, and yet finding ourselves often held captive to the idols of our city, worshiping success and finance, right? Worshiping 
all that Dallas has to offer. How is Dallas really a lot like Babylon? It's a question I want you to wrestle with. Verse 3, we see this tension play out even more deep down to identity. Not just worship, but the identity. And, And what I want you to recognize is anything that we worship is not just an external thing. It goes down to our hearts, right? It flows from the heart. It flows from the very people that we are. We see this in verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and nobility. All right, so the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what he's trying to do, this is before uh, the mass exile, right? This is before any of that happens. The king, before he gets all of the people of Israel into Babylon, he is first going to select a select few uh, of uh, Jewish youths, ones that are strong, show a lot of promise, and he's going to ask them to come. And notice what he does. They're youths without blemish, good appearance, skillful. Uh, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food uh, and uh, wine of the king, and they were educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were stand before the king. Okay, so what's Nebuchadnezzar doing? What's his strategy? So it's before I'm going to fully uh, grab all of the people of Israel. Before I do that, I'm going to get some of those most, most promising youths, right? Young men who show the most promise, and I'm going to invite them into my court. They're going to eat my food. They're going to drink my wine, and I'm going to educate them for three years. What is he doing? He's indoctrinating them. That's exactly right. His goal is to fully indoctrinate the future leadership of Israel so that he can fully hold them captive. And who are these four young men in particular? Well, we were told it's Daniel and his three friends, right? We're told that they were, uh, they were involved in the study of literature and language of the Chaldeans. So that term is used interchangeably two ways in the book of Daniel. One is just to refer to the Chaldeans, the people of Babylon, ethnic. But the other way is actually a culture, the Chaldean culture. All that it had to offer, its history, its literature, Uh, It's religion. Okay, so that's what they are studying, and that's what they are learning. And we're told in verse 6 that these four youths, Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, uh, they're from the tribe of Judah, right? So they're from the southern kingdom. They're probably teenagers at this point, young men. Maybe they're 16 years old, about, maybe 17. And we're told in verse 7 that the chief of eunuchs gave them new names. He gave them new names. So not only are we going to educate you, not only are we going to eat our food and drink our wine, but we're actually going to give you a new identity. So fundamental to us as we find ourselves in this tension between our culture and, and, and being godly, being faithful. It's not just a war of our worship, it's a war of our identity, the core of who we are. And we see this in the name. Names are important in the Bible, names are important here. Especially in the ancient world, names are important. Less, uh, more so than they are today. Uh, my name is Paul. Uh, my middle name is Russell. Paul means small. Russell means redhead, right? So I am small redhead. Does not, right? We, we don't think about names that way anymore. Back then, it meant everything. It was a, a descriptor of your very identity. Daniel's name means my judge is God. That's what Daniel means. And his name is changed to Belshazzar, which means Bell's prince, Bel is a Babylonian god. So do you see what's happening? 
We are going to fully indoctrinate you to the point where we're actually going to change your identity. Daniel, your name was God as judge, Yahweh as judge. Now your name is, you are a prince of a Babylonian god. Hananiah means uh, Yahweh has shown grace. Shadrach means command of Aku, another Babylonian god. Mishael means uh, who is what God is. Meshach means I am little account. Azariah means Yahweh has helped me. Abednego means servant of the god Nebo, another Babylonian god. Brothers, what I want you to see is we are in a war just like these men were. A war not just for uh, our worship, but for our very souls, our very identities. And what we need to recognize is that we are in deep. We are in deep. Uh, the great uh, missionary uh, Leslie Newbigin, in a book that's great if you ever want to read something to go along with uh, our study, The Gospel of Pluralist Society, he once said this. He said, trying to criticize your own culture is like sitting in a bus and trying to push it at the same time. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, you can try to criticize the culture that you live in all you want, but you are just as much a part of the problem. Right? You can't just say, oh, the culture is bad and it's eat. No, look, you, you have been, you are in deep, much deeper than you realize. And this is a battle for your very soul. Right? The faithlessness of Babylon was everywhere. And we're going to see it everywhere throughout this book. Second, We'll kind of speed up here a little bit. Second, uh, the faithfulness of Daniel. So what you see, beginning here throughout the book, is this faithfulness that Daniel has. We see this in verse 8. Daniel resolves that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Right? He doesn't want to defile himself. It's not just that he wants to be morally pure. But to be defiled by this kind of food and drink was now to make yourself ceremonially impure. So, in other words, he is trying to be as a consistent uh, in his godliness and faithfulness as he can possibly be. But notice, how does he resist? There's a lot of options he could have taken, right? One would be, well, I'm just not going to eat. Hunger strike. Right? One could have been with force. But that's not what Daniel does. What Daniel does with a great deal of faithfulness, you wonder what would be the harder option, is he actually goes to the people who are over him, the chief eunuch, and what does he do? He says, I don't want to eat this. I can't eat this. I'm not allowed to eat this. And would you allow me to eat something different? And we're told the chief eunuch says, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that because I fear Nebuchadnezzar. Because if Nebuchadnezzar looks at all of you guys and sees that you're wasting away, I'm the one who's going to get in trouble. And so Daniel says, well, let's just put it to the test. We're just going to eat water and vegetables. And after 10 days, I want you to come and look at us. And if it looks like we're wasting away, then deal with us as you want. Well, after 10 days, they come and look at them again after eating nothing but vegetables and water. And what they see is that Daniel and his three friends are much stronger, right, much fuller, much fatter than all the other use. What this is not is an argument for being vegetarians, okay? It's not what this is. Meat is good. Smoked meat is better. Um, that's not what this is. What this is is a picture of Daniel's faithfulness, right? 
And God's showing favor upon that. That here is Daniel finding himself in a culture that is asking to do something against his deep identity as a child of God. And not only does he refuse, but he charts a way forward. Not just going on hunger strike or showing force, but he's actually engaging the culture that he's in and he's saying, look, there is a better way. And I'm asking permission for you to allow me to do this. And he's trusting that God's going to lead him through that. It's a picture of the faithfulness of Daniel. We're going to see this faithfulness time and time again. Number three, this is the last thing before we go to your tables. What I want you to begin to recognize is that more than anything, more than about the faithlessness of Babylon or the faithfulness of Daniel, ultimately the book of Daniel is really a book about the faithfulness of God. That's what Daniel's about. We see this over and over and over again. Verse 17, 18, 19. We're told that God gave Daniel and his three friends learning and skill and literature and wisdom. God was the one that did that. In other words, God made Daniel and his three friends excel through this program to the point where at the end of the three years, Nebuchadnezzar gives them an oral examination and he finds that these little Jewish boys, right? These little children of Israel have more intellect, more ability. They are better at being Babylonian than any of the Babylonian use. Not only that, but part of magic and divination, right? Part of uh, their culture of, of trying to uh, have these visions and predict the future that Daniel, because he's been gifted by God with the ability to understand visions, is actually better than that, than any of their magicians. And this will serve Daniel well as he serves in the kingdom of Babylon. God is the one that did that. But we see that this isn't the first time that we see this in chapter 1. Verse 9, we're told that it was God who gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. So as Daniel is saying, listen, I can't eat any of that or drink any of that, God was right there with Daniel, giving him favor in the sight of the eunuchs, in the sight of his overseers. But not only that, if you go all the way back up to verse 2, Daniel 1, verse 2. And what do you read? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God. Why did Judah fall captive to Babylon? Why? Because the Lord delivered them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Brothers, what I want you to begin to wrestle with beginning now and the rest of the semester. It's God's faithfulness looks different to you and I than perhaps we think it should. And in God's sovereignty and in his faithfulness, he is delivering his own people into captivity, into the Babylonian culture. If it's the Lord who's delivered Daniel and his three friends and all the people of God into the Babylonian empire, then don't you think it's the Lord who's going to be with them every step of the way? That however bad it's going to look, whatever fiery furnace they find themselves in or lion's den, I mean, you know some of the stories. 
isn't God going to be right there with them every step of the way? And that ultimately, brothers, is the theme of the book of Daniel. But we might be tempted. Look, it's called Daniel, so we're going to be tempted. Isn't he the hero? Daniel's not the hero. God is the hero. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, we pray that you would be with us now as we discuss these things, as we wrestle with our own place as the city of Dallas and how the ways that we feel captive to it, we pray that you would give us a vision of faithfulness. And we pray that that vision, what it means to be faithful in a faithless culture, would be rooted in your faithfulness to us. Would you meet us here now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.